If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to take them, turn with me to the book of Philippians chapter 1. Our text this morning will be found in verses 19 through verse 26. Philippians chapter 1, 19 through 26. <clears throat> welcome, welcome every single one of you. It is great to be in the house of the Lord together. For me to live is Christ. We have before us a text. We have before us a text that is such a great, a majestic text that it seems like any, any preaching connected or associated with it just does not do it justice. You've oftentimes heard me use the picture that we um, are to share the good news with others in the world around us, in our community. And that's like giving a, a glass of cold water to the thirsty. That's what we are called to do. We have to give a glass of cold water to the thirsty. But, but as we do that, you realize that we get our fingerprints and kind of like smudges on the glass. Like We have to do that. And yet even getting that to that person... We leave our fingerprints. That's what I feel today, this text. The only perfect part of any message that is ever preached is just the reading of God's word. And so what I would ask, I know that you just sat down, but we're going to stand up today as we read. I will read. You can follow along. The words will be in front of you. This incredible text of scripture this morning, Philippians chapter 1, begin in verse 19. Actually, the end of verse 18. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your accounts. Convinced of this. I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So that in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, we have before us now a text that is so rich and so deep that we ask right now for you, the one who gave us these words, the one who is here with us at this moment, 
The one who created us and has called us to purpose for your glory. Father, we ask that you would speak directly to each one of us. Lord, we live in a world and a day and a time of just utter confusion. People are racing and, and they're grabbing and they're, 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 they're hoping to hold on to something that is of no value. Apart from the good news of Jesus. Father, we, we plead with you and I ask you that you would allow us to search the very depths of our heart and soul. That we would know what it means this morning to live is Christ. I do pray for people that are here this morning whose, whose, ache, whose heart aches, who are experiencing hardship and hurt. Father, minister to them and comfort them as only you can. Father, I pray for Pastor Stewart and his whole team of leaders this weekend as he is away with, with all of the junior high students. We ask for there to be a, an amazing time of spiritual growth and enrichment for them. Protect them. Speak to them. Thank you for this church. Thank you for what you're doing in our midst. Thank you for the freedoms and the graces. Thank you for those who we recognized earlier who served our country. Father, I just want to thank you for your word before us. May you be glorified in this time. We ask this in a strong and powerful name of our Savior, the Messiah, Jesus. Amen and amen. You may be seated. Philippians, this book that we have been involved in, I call it Real Joy for Real Life. It seems that the, the letter to the church at Philippi is synonymous with joy. The past several weeks... We have examined and, and learned that in spite of Paul's kind of hardship that he's facing, he is under house arrest, he's imprisoned, he suffered pain and hardship and hurt and harm and attacks and criticism and, and slander. He still, as a result of that, he still rejoices because he realizes that all of his, his actions and all of his words can, can advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. This really brings perspective into some of the own, our own pain and suffering that we feel. You realize that God can do something purposeful. God can do something beautiful with the hardship that you perhaps are going through at this very moment. Be assured there is always, always a reason to rejoice when we keep the focus not on ourselves, but first and foremost on the Lord and other people. It didn't really seem to matter that Paul was facing perhaps even execution. He lived with this single focus as long as the gospel advances. And I have asked myself this question, like, how, how did he do this? Like, how did, how did he live like this? Today, we get what I call our first glimpse in the entire first chapter that we've studied now for several weeks. We get our first glimpse under the hood. We, we, we see and we hear the Apostle Paul's heart. And we get like a microscopic, a zoomed in, a close-up view Specifically, how he can rejoice 
in such dire circumstances. And, and we don't even get a chance to see his, his, his confidence and his conviction. But today we see the motivation for this. And this is so needed. So desperately needed for you and I this morning. So number one, we see what I refer to as a single hope here. Paul lives at this moment with a single hope that Christ will deliver me. Two times in eight verses, Paul uses this short phrase, I know. We read it in verse 19. Paul says, I know that through your prayers, I know through the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. The word is soterio. It's the same word as we get what salvation from. This will turn out for my salvation. He uses the same phrase again in verse 25, convinced of this. I know that I will remain. The word is neno. It means to stay and to abide. I know that I will continue with you all for your progress and your joy in the faith. Let me tell you this. In times of difficulty, in times of darkness that Paul was facing, and perhaps that some of you are facing at this very moment, in times of hardship and heartache, you must be reminded of what you know, what you know for certain. I don't think it would ever pass a, a parenting class. But I remember watching my father as he taught my oldest sister, Trishy, how to swim in the ocean. She was one of those kind of like just dip her toes in on the edge, but she never really got fully wet. And he was concerned about that. And so I remember as what little brother watching my dad as he gathered up my sister and literally carried her out to the breakers at the shore and just, just tossed her in. But before he tossed her in, he gave her this instruction. Trishy, remember this. When you feel sand on the bottom, you know there's air up there. That was the instruction. Have fun. She learned how to swim. Let me tell you this, she loves the beach today. Why, why? What do you know for certain? Paul is expressing this is what he is sure of. As a result of what? Two things, the prayers of the saints and the provision of the Spirit. Because of those two things, all of this ugliness... The bloodied wrists and ankles that have been chained. All of this ugliness can and what will turn out for my deliverance. This is actually a quote people don't realize from the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. This exact phrase actually comes from Job in chapter 13, verse 16, where Job, in all of his affliction, you know the story, all of his hardship, Job says this, and I quote Job 13, verse 16, this also will be for my salvation. So Paul is saying, Paul knows the same thing that Job knows. All of this suffering, 
is only going to be for a little while, just a little while. And he will be delivered. He will be saved from this. Of course, we know the, the, the question, the immediate question before us at a quick glance is what? Is this talking about physical deliverance, salvation here? Is Paul talking about he, he knows that he will be delivered from pain and suffering and imprisonment or execution? Or is he referring to spiritual deliverance, spiritual salvation? I know I'll be saved from my sin and, and death through faith. In Jesus, I think, in all honesty, although we ask that question, it's pretty easy to determine what Paul meant by this qualifying expectation, by life or by death. What does he mean by that? He means this. He knows. It doesn't matter if he lives or if he dies. He will be saved. He is safe. Back to, like, how... Does one live like that? He continues on. He says, I'm actually eager. I'm eager. I, I don't want to be ashamed. He says, I'm eager with full courage. Now as always that Christ be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And so he lives with this eagerness, this anxiousness, this expectation. I thought about us. I thought about my life. What am I anxious for? Do, do, I, do I consider my life one that I am eager to have courage to face whatever's out there? Ask yourself this question. What am I eager for? Paul is eager to have courage to face whatever is out there. And for some reason, when we examine and measure our own eagerness, I don't think that's always the top of our list. God, give me courage to face what? Horrible times. Or give me the courage to face blessed times so that it doesn't go to my head. Today, we would be wise to listen to the Holy Spirit and learn from the hope. Paul has a single hope here. He knows Christ will deliver me. Number two, there is also a single mind, and this is where we will rest for the bulk of our time this morning. A single mind that Christ will be my identity. It's this phrase that we park on in verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. This verse is oft considered the, what is called the capstone of this preaching portion. It is the capstone of this entire chapter and perhaps arguably even of the entire book. I think it's right, very interesting to, to, to learn this week that, that in Greek this actually, when it's translated, there is no verb here. So we actually had to add that so that it kind of made sense in the English language. It would, it would literally, if it was translated literally from Greek, it would say this, to live Christ, to die gain. To live Christ, to die gain. Paul knew that what? His living is Christ. Okay, well help me with this. That means that 
whatever life you have been given, every single breath and heart beats that God in his common grace gives to you, every minute, every, every hour that God has graced you with, every day that you are on this earth, all the strength that I have, the ability to move and to see, to walk and to talk, all of it I have is Christ. Christ is the sole object for what I live. Or to say it another way, to live Christ means that your whole identity, your whole identity is Christ. Which in turn means what? That your own identity is no longer in existence. Well, that's hard. Yeah, but what, what about like, what about me? We have that. Well, what about, what about the experiences that I've had? What about the gifts that God has given to me? What about my person? What about my view? Be assured you don't disappear from existence. This is, the, this is the great part. You don't disappear from existence. You don't stop being yourself, but your identity actually changes. This is somewhat hard to explain. Any illustration that one gives to prove a point, at, at some level you push it far enough and it breaks down, and, and so, so we'll try this. Let's try this. At, at 12 o'clock noon, on August the 12th, 1989, in a little tiny church, in a little tiny town way up north in Holton, Maine, Wendy and I stood up before God and a church filled with witnesses. And we exchanged what? We exchanged vows and we exchanged rings, and we were pronounced what? Husband and wife. And, and one, I don't remember which one, one of the five pastors that participated in that service, that was not my idea, quoted Matthew chapter 19 and verse 6, and it says this. As we stood up before everyone, the pastor said what? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. After that, we signed a marriage license that is recorded at City Hall. And Wendy went from that moment, from being Wendy Henderson, and, and it was changed to Wendy Boger. One O, not two O's. Big difference. So she is no longer Wendy Henderson. She's Wendy Boger. Does she, does she still exist? Yes. She's here this morning. Has she lost the gifts that God has given to her? Absolutely not. She's the same person, but her identity is what? There is no longer a Wendy Henderson, not legally. Why? 
because as long as we are both alive, she is connected to me. My identity is in her, and some of her identity is in me. You, you see, when one becomes a follower of Jesus Christ, when one says, I trust Jesus more than I trust anyone and anything else in this world, their identity changes from the moment of belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything changes. I think it's best explained by Paul's own words in Galatians in chapter 2 and verse 20. He says this, and I quote, I have been crucified with Christ. I've been nailed to the cross with Christ. It is no longer I who live. Paul says it in his own words. The Holy Spirit gave Paul those words. God himself is saying, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life in which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and he gave himself for me. It seems um, that Paul's words in Galatians chapter 2 fit perfectly with what the Lord Jesus Christ himself said. Well, if, if you want to follow me, what did he say in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 24? If anyone desires to, if anyone wants to follow to, to me, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself. Let her deny herself and take up his cross and follow me. It seems to, that, that Paul's words, I am crucified with Christ, Christ is saying exactly the same thing, what, deny yourself. William Barclay says it like this, to deny oneself means in every moment of life to say no to self. And to say yes to God. To deny oneself means once, finally, and for all to dethrone self and to enthrone God. To deny oneself means to obliterate self as the dominant principle of life and to make God the ruling principle, more the ruling passion of life. The life of constant self-denial is the life of constant assent to God. It was that, it was that phrase in there. Barclay says that we need to obliterate self as the dominant principle of life and that goes against every message that you will hear in this world today it goes against every message that we are as followers of jesus to obliterate ourselves and live with that purpose you have oftentimes heard me and i will continue to remind people and teach people i encourage you regularly Go spend time in a graveyard. Hang around a cemetery. It's not creepy, okay? I'm saying go there and you have a reminder of certain things. Give thought. Go, go slow. Sit there. In the craziness, in the, the, the hecticness of this world, take time and give attention to certain things and ponder your own life and the purpose for your own life. Think about things that you don't normally think about. Think about your own 
impact, the purpose. Why am I here? Think about life and think about death. Think about, think about the finality of life on this earth, the brevity of life on this earth. Think about eternality. Think about heaven. Give thought to a literal hell. And you ask those questions, why am I here? What am I doing? Ask the question, what am I living for? Ask the question, how am I doing at this? Ask yourself, where am I going? Paul here calls us by example to live a life that is all Christ. All Christ. Notice it doesn't say, for me to live is for Christ. At some level, that would be human responsibility that we've got to do. He's not talking about that. For me to live is Christ. It simply means that my whole person, my whole life, my identity is Christ. And don't, don't miss this. Don't miss who your life is. Christ is more than some weak, emaciated, bloodied man nailed to a Roman cross. He's, he's more than that. He's much more than that. Give thought to Christus, Savior, Messiah. Give thought to the one that was nailed to that tree as the worst form of punishment and execution that the world has ever known. That one is God totally. The one who created everything out of nothing with a spoken word. The one who sustains every breath of every single person on the face of this earth. That, that, that for you to live is Christ, that that Christ is the redeemer, is the victor. And, and remind yourself of who Christ is as fully man, but yet fully God, and, and model who Christ is. I regularly, regularly teach people about what I refer to as big God theology. What do you mean by that? You need to do this on a regular basis. Take, take a flashlight, go down to your basement, or, or go somewhere in your garage, and, and, and bring your children there, and you turn the flashlight on, and, and in the light you see the, the dust particles. Doesn't matter how many times you clean, there's still dust particles, right? And bring your children down and shine the light and say, see those dust particles? See each one of those moving? God is the one who controls the movement of every single one of those dust particles. And, and they'll be like, yeah, yeah, but look, Dad, I can move my hand. Look, I'm causing the dust particles. No, no, and then, then you'll say, well, who gave you the ability to move your hands? That God created you with a brain that tells your hand to move. That's who is what? It's big God theology. No, 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 my, my brain was the one, I was the one who made the decision. No, no, who was the one who allowed oxygen to be pumped, what, through your lungs and into your heart, and who allowed that oxygen to go to your brain to tell you to move your hand to control the... God is behind everything. 
every dust particle, every grain of sand on every single beach in the entire world, take a blanket and lay out on the front lawn and look up at night at the stars. We, we, can't, we can't even begin to count them. And God not just, what, knows the number of them. He placed them there and he named them. It's big God theology for me to live is Christ who is fully God. Therefore, we must, we must come to a place. You and I this morning must come to a place by, by asking what? Who is it? What is it that I'm living for? It is so easy. It is so Easy, and we've all got caught up living for something else that we thought would satisfy. It was the fall of 1990. Wow. Wendy was about six months pregnant with our first and, and had a doctor's appointment. And, and the doctor, uh, he, basically, I think he shined like a, a flashlight at her belly. And he said, yeah, it looks like it's going to be a girl. What? And, and, and we were walking out, and we were in the parking lot. And I, and I told Wendy, I said, I, I, think, I think he's wrong. I don't, how's, he, how's he know that? And she's like, he's a doctor. That's what he does. He like, shines flashlights at people. He knows. I said, I think he's wrong. You know what? I, I was right. It, it wasn't a girl. It was actually a boy. And, and that January, end of January, Seth was born. And, and you, you know what happens. Those of you who have been there, and, and, and you know that you're handed that little one, and you begin to count. Like, okay, does he have all, like, ten fingers? And does he all have ten toes? And you count that. And, like, okay, he's got that. And you look at his face. Like, well, he's a little ugly. Okay, but, but... And you look at him, you look at him, and then you notice something. I noticed it. On his left arm was a birthmark, quite a large birthmark. It's a sign from God. I knew what that meant. God gave me a left-handed picture. That's what he gave me. Everyone knows what a birthmark means. It was like day one. I mean, it, was, it was a yellow and blue, soft, squishy, squishy ball we put in his crib. And when he was old enough to grab it, I put it into his left hand. And when he was old enough to throw it, he threw it with his left hand. I remember standing in different parts of the room when he was old enough. He could throw it to me, and I thought, this is it. This is the gift that God has given to us. He was nine years old, and as a family, we were traveling through to a wedding in Ohio, and we stopped at Cooperstown, New York, the Baseball Hall of Fame. And there's a place set up there where, where people could throw a baseball, and you had a radar gun to, to measure how fast you could throw it. <laughs> I knew how this was going to go. I had seen it. And so he flipped the ball to my son, and he threw it. And the guy there erased, what, the name at the top of the board. And they put, what, his name, because that boy threw harder than any other boy. And I said, yeah, spell that with one O, not two O's. Big difference. Big difference. And that was it. 
for, for, for what? For the next number of years. We were like, we were all in. There was, there was baseball clinics and there was camps and there were pitching coaches and money spent and tournaments and plane tickets and all-star teams and travel teams and state championships and regional championships and colleges called and scouts called. We rationalized it. The birthmark on his left hand, God, this is, all, this is all for God's glory. This is all for God's glory. People do that all the time. This is just going to be a, a good investment to be able to pay for college, right? That's a good idea. And then when he signs, when he signs, we're probably going to like um, help other people build churches with that. And we rationalized it all away. It literally became... For me to live, it's baseball. It's baseball. How desperately, desperately, desperately wrong is that? I was a pastor. For me to live was not Christ. What happens? What happens when the arm blows? with a 19-year-old kid. What happens then? And everything, everything. Let, let, me, let me tell you from experience, living for anything, living for anything, rationalize it away. Living for anything other than Christ is empty. There is nothing there. Now, there are some people that are sitting in this room this morning, and you may not want to admit it, just like it's not fun for me to have admitted it, but your life would read something like this. For me to live is money. I just want to make just a little bit more, and then we'll be happy. Some of you, you may not want to admit it, but you will have to say, for me to live is success of our own name in our own community. For me to live is, fill in the blank, fill in the blank. Some of you would say, for me to live is hunting. For me to live is football. For me to live is my own career. For me to live is, is happiness. For me to live, we rationalize this. For me to live is just what? It's just, it's our family. Just last night, I was reading a quote. Kevin DeYoung said this. One of the acceptable idolatries among evangelical Christians is the idolatry of family. Families are a blessing. You know that. I'm not saying they're not a blessing. I'm saying what? For me to live is family? Is wrong. Is dead wrong. It's actually, if you're not quite sure, like, I don't really know, like, what's in that. But it's actually quite easy to determine, to figure this out. What is it that you think about all the time? It's actually kind of easy. You know what captures your mind and your attention. You know what fascinates you. 
You're like a bug that goes to the light every single time. Whoa! What is it you think about? What is it that occupies your attention? What is it that you dream about? What is it that you spend money on, wish for, hope for, live for? For me to live is fill in the blank. Be assured, I'm not saying, I'm not saying, please, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the game of baseball. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the game of football. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with a college scholarship or a successful career. I'm not saying, okay, we need to be a floozy here, a failure. I'm not saying that. There's nothing wrong with a cozy home. Nothing wrong with them unless that's your life. Unless it captures and captivates all of your attention. Be assured, if you remember nothing else, if you remember nothing else, remember this this morning. Be assured, you cannot compare and thus you cannot replace the glory of Christ with anything, with anything that exists in this world. You cannot compare and thus you cannot replace the glory of Christ with anything that exists in this world. Matt Chandler said it like this in his book, appropriately titled, To Live is Christ. He said, and I quote, when everything considered valuable in life is seen to be nothing in comparison to the glory of Christ, you learn rather well that Christ alone is worth living for. Christ alone is worthy of an entire life's affections and devotions. So in this text before us, and remember, we just, we smudge it just as we get it to you. Preaching is what? The means of ordinary grace. We have to go through this. And this, when this text is telling us to live as Christ, to die is gained, be assured it's telling you that when you choose to live for anyone or anything other than Christ, then to die is not gain. You know where we're going with this. If you fill in the blank there, for me to live is with anything other than Christ, then guess what? It is not gain when you die. Why? Because Jesus himself said, anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow. I love the picture. I love the picture. As a believer, we celebrate with believer's baptism. I love, and we look forward in a couple of weeks, celebrating a baptism right here for the first time in our own church. And, and I remind people, what you don't, you don't get a little bit wet here. Christ wasn't like a little bit dead. He was dead. Before what? His heavenly Father raised him to newness of life. Therefore, we what? We are all wet, and we come out ready to walk in the newness newness of life. You've got to ask you. You've got to listen to what the Holy Spirit is telling you. What or who is your identity and fill in that blank. And if it's other than Christ, then be assured that today, today is the day that you can 
you, you can make sure everything else and all of your wishes and wants for this world are obliterated and that you can live for Christ. Thirdly and finally, what? Paul also lives with a single goal. A single goal. Christ will be glorified. And then verse 26, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory. Paul's, boy, there's such confidence here, isn't there? There is such conviction. There's such motivation. In me, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ. It's pretty, it's pretty clear here that you see that Paul is torn, his emotions. He knows he has been called to minister to others who are in need of the gospel. And that, that, that he knows he needs to be there in this life. But he also knows what death means. He gets to be with Christ. And so it is, it is a win to live and minister the gospel. And it is also an equally a win, what? To die and be with Christ. Why? Because in both circumstances, Christ will be glorified. What does that do for our life? Knowing that such hope, such joy is desperately lacking in our world today. When you know that, you live like that, there is no fear. There's no sense of worry and, and wondering. Such is the life and death of one who follows Jesus. This week I read what? That death is a homegoing for a Christian. It's just a homegoing. That is so true. Let me tell you this. It's, it's difficult moments, and, and I've been there. Been at the side of a bed in people's homes. I've been at the side of a bed in, in people's hospital rooms. When someone breathes their last. And I've been there when a a brother or sister in Christ, a faithful follower of Jesus, has passed away, taken their very last breath. And let me tell you this, it is so odd to move what from, from the temporal here, this, and this chapter closes to the eternal. And yet people who live, but knowing that Christ is their identity, no doubt that there is a tear that is shed, but ultimately... It is an amazing sense of peace. God's word says it's beyond explanation and understanding. There, there's, a, there's a hope that it's, it permeates the room. When believers, what? Lose a loved one who is also a believer. Sadness, but for a moment because we will spend, and I know this, we'll spend eternity together. And it erupts. I've, I've sung hymns with others at that very moment, praising God for the hope that exists. And oh, people, I have, I have been in rooms where the one who is taking his last breath and took it, there is no hope. Who denied to the very end? Who the people around the loved ones live in utter, sheer terror and fear and uncertainty. One I witnessed that 
that a son simply could not let go of his father, could not, had to forcibly be removed. Shrieking in terror because they don't know. Because what? They didn't live their life as followers of Jesus. This morning, this morning, I invite you to live Christ. Live Christ. To live Christ. If, if, you, if you don't understand and you need to dialogue more or talk more, please pull me aside. Pull anyone with a name tag. Please do not leave this building this morning without knowing for certain talk with you. We'd love to talk with you. Nothing excites me more to talk with people about this is how you live Christ. It's not worth living for anything else. Today, God's word says, today is the day of salvation. May that be the case for you. And if you're a believer here this morning that knows what? That there are idols in your life that are not the only true and living God. And I would encourage you to confess that and to remove yourself, to obliterate yourself and allow Christ to sit enthroned in the center of your life. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for what you have um, reminded us of this morning. I thank you, Lord, that although it's hard at times to hear and humbling, convicting, I thank you, Lord, that it's, it's words that are full of life and hope. I thank you for the, the demonstration, the example that was given through Paul. Thank you for the presence of the Holy Spirit that allows us, Lord, to do business in our own lives right now, right now. And God, my prayer is that that's exactly what happens. Thank you for the time you've given to us Thank you, Lord, that we can um, gather together and sing. And as we sing this last song, may we do it, Lord, with hearts that are living with only you, with only you in mind. We ask this in Jesus' name. I invite you to stand with us as we close.